Word Radio On Demand, 96.1 FM and 900 AM WURD. Streaming live at wordradio.com. This is your host, Amadi Braxton, and the voice that you're about to hear join me in conversation is a familiar one to you, although maybe under a different hat. I'm very pleased to welcome Chris Rabb. I'm introducing him as Chris Rabb and not State Rep Chris Rabb today because <laughs> I'm not going to be, or at least I'm not planning to talk to him about uh, state legislative matters. I am inviting him on today to talk about his work as a master genealogist uh, in researching his family history going back many, many generations, far more than I have been able to go back so far in my own research. Um, and his work to uncover what has now um, been taken up um, by Yale, not only not because solely of his work, but um, it's dovetailing with important work at Yale University, looking at Yale's history uh, and connection to slavery. Um, so before we dive in, welcome back to Solutions. Hey, glad to be back in, in this new capacity. It's very exciting. Yeah. Thank you for being on. Um, I want to first ask you, how did you become kind of compelled to research your family history and how far back have you been able to go uh, to trace your ancestry on the both sides of your family? That's so interesting because you started with the two most common questions I've gotten over the past 30 years. Um, you know, why and how did you start and um, how far back have you been able to go? So the, the first part is pretty straightforward. I um, had the great fortune of knowing my parents and their parents. So I knew all four of my grandparents. Um, my first parent, uh, grandparent to die was my father's father who died when I was around 10. And by the time... Um, uh, he died. He he was not super verbal. Uh, we believe he may have died of Alzheimer's before that was um, something that people knew about. Um, but he was an extraordinary man um, who I, I didn't know this until after he died, um, came from uh, Mississippi. And so fast forward, my 20s probably started when I was in college. I asked my dad's mom, said, tell me about your husband. What was, you know, um, Pop Pop, where was he from? Where is people from? Now, where's the Rab name come from? It's, a, it's an odd name, right? Rab. Um, and she's like, I don't know. I'm not a Rab. I'm a Miller. <laughs> so she said, well, his people come from Columbus, Mississippi. We visited there in 1930, uh, uh, right before we got married. I met his father. And she just told me very little about his father. His mom had died at a young age and said that his father ran Rab's Meat Market. It's like, oh, we had a family business. That's cool. Um, and eventually I saw an amazing photograph of my great-grandfather in front of the Rab's meat market that he inherited from his father. But she didn't know much about um, my grandfather's grandfather. And all basically because she'd only met her father-in-law-to-be once, said, I remembered that he liked he, he would eat soup every day. So that's literally what I knew about my entire Rab family. My father was an only child. Um, he was not super verbose 
about his family. He wasn't like ashamed or anything. It just wasn't an interest of his. Like he just didn't, you know, he wasn't one of these people who like look backwards. Um, and I was just really enthralled. So then I started asking my grandma about her people, her people from Kentucky. Well, fast forward, I start doing research. Um, and this is after I graduate from college. And uh, my mom's mom sees that I'm making all this progress on my father's side. And she's like, um, yeah, I'm going to need to um, hire you. I'm like, what? And she's like, yeah, I'm going to hire you to do my genealogy because I have specific things I need you to help uncover for me. And I said, Grandma, you, you don't have to pay me. I'm your grandchild. And she's like, oh, no, I will pay you because that's how I'm going to hold you accountable. Mm. <laughs> and that was deep. She was always giving me lessons, whether I knew it or not. So she taught me how to write a memo. She taught me how to complete an invoice, document my hours. She we, had you invoicing her. Wow. I invoiced her. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> had to give her research memos about what I found. So I, the memo would be the content of the research I'd done on her behalf. Mm -hmm. And then the invoice documented how many hours. And she would cut me a check um, with her incredible penmanship. And that's what we did for, I don't know, almost two years. Huh. You know, I, I also needed the money. I, I, you know, I had a low wage job after college and, you know, hard making ends meet. But so um, but I did it, you know, out of love. But um, I took her money and I learned along the way and, and it facilitated, it expedited what she needed to know because she was afraid that she wasn't going to get answers um, by the time she died. Um, mm -hmm. A morose way of looking at it, but uh, but she she lived to be eighty five, um, and the bottom line is she wanted to know if the what she had heard through the family, like the oral history in our family and in um, correspondence from people in the family generations prior, if we were related to this very prominent white family in New York, the Livingstons. And the Livingstons are quite possibly the wealthiest, most aristo uh, aristocratic family um, in colonial America. Mm. Uh, at one point, the family owned upwards of a million acres of land, which is larger than the footprint of Rhode Island. Wow. These folks were everything from mayors, governors, senators, um, signers of the Declaration of Independence, mm. uh, so-called merchants. Well, this last part is important because when the history books talk about merchants and we, we learn about uh, formidable merchants uh, in middle school and high school, oftentimes that was a euphemism for human traffickers. So these people mm. were enslavers on a massive scale. Mm. And our connection to them was through slavery and rape. One of these Livingstons um, raped my great, 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 great grandmother, Barbara Williams, um, back. This would have been in the early 1800s, uh, around 1812. So people say, well, you know, how do you, you you can't prove that it was rape. Some people say that. And my ancestor, who was was the offspring of this white man and this black enslaved girl, and she almost certainly was a girl. Um, well, that statutory rape, minors don't have can't give consent. And she was property of that of that family 
property can't give consent. Hmm. So whatever people, however people may want to romanticize, you know, forbidden love or that kind of stuff, it is in that context of slavery and, and domination and patriarchy. So also there are, there are examples that are proxies for some kind of relationship that's beyond transactional or under duress. Um, so it could be correspondence between a couple where they profess their love. It could be the transference of a large amount of land or other forms of wealth. Um, it could be um, how the, the people are named, how the children are named. It could be any number of things that would at least approximate some level of intimacy, none of which existed um, from my documentation over the past 30 years. Hmm. So um, this has been a journey of mine really over the past 30 years, but it is just one of many different lineages that I have traced over that time. So this is just one of 32 lines or one of 64 lines. So there's 63 other lines that I have researched to a greater or lesser extent. So when you asked initially, how far back can I go? When we think of genealogy, I want you to think of an upside down triangle. And we are at the bottom of that triangle. And on the left is our paternal side. So that's our dad's side. And the maternal is our mother's side. We all have two biological parents or grandparents, eight grandparents. It goes up geometrically, not exponentially, but geometrically. It doubles with each generation you go back. Mm -hmm. So the further you go back, the wider it gets. If you can only go back a little bit, it, it doesn't go wide, it goes okay. back. So the more time and effort and expansiveness of your research, it's how it's how far and wide you can go. Because if we just talked about one lineage, then you say, oh, I can go back to the 1200s potentially. Mm -hmm. On so another branch, you can only go back to the 1800s, right? But it really depends. And um, depending on how nomadic your people are, they could be from all over the place. Some people have parents who were born in the same county in North Carolina. Uh, you know, that makes it easier in some sense. But my people, my Negroes were semi-nomadic. <laughs> so they moved around a lot. Mississippi, Georgia, South Carolina, Connecticut, New York, Maine, uh, you name it. And um, in the South and the North. And I have enslaved ancestors who um, were enslaved um, both in the South and um, in the North, inclusive of New York City, which was mm -hmm. one of the largest enslaved Black populations in our country. So um, it is quite diverse. And oftentimes people say, oh, well, you know, you know so much. I wish I knew what you knew. I wish my family had all these stories and such. Do not assume that your stories are any less or any less interesting than mine, just because you have not had the good fortune of having letters and pictures and connections with elders does not mean that you will not be able to document your ancestors' footprints. You can. It'll take time and hard work and some luck, but you can do it too. But do not assume that um, you're out of luck just because you weren't born you know, you weren't growing up hearing these stories. These mm -hmm. things can unfold um, if you are committed to doing the work. Hmm. 
And I'll just back to your point about slavery in New York City. Um, I right before you came on, I was reading from a New York Times article about this week's uh, action by the the governor of New York signing a bill setting up a reparations commission for New York State. And in that article, it says that before the American Revolution, there were more enslaved Africans in New York City than in any other U.S. city except Charleston, South Carolina. Right. To put a finer point on that. Yes. And they had a huge African burial ground um, Mm -hmm. in in the on the southern tip of Manhattan. And that is the probably the neighborhood where my ancestors may have met Mm. in the 1830s. Um, So (laughs) there were there were there were enslaved Africans who were brought over directly from the continent when most of us as African-Americans have ancestors who came from West Africa, but through the Caribbean and then to the south and up and up or further south. But in New York, there were direct um, uh, shipping routes that took human cargo from West Africa directly to New York City. It was a massive population. And so this notion that, you know, uh, slavery started or uh, uh, was exclusive to the South is simply not true. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, we're up on our first break. Um, We'll continue this conversation on the other side, um, talking a little bit more about the offspring of Barbara Williams um, and the your connection to the Livingstons, her role in uh, the abolition movement, and where Yale University comes in, because that's your your, uh, alma mater. You're listening to Solutions here with Chris Rabb. We'll be right back. You're listening to Solutions exclusively on Word Radio, 96.1 FM and 900 AM WURD. Welcome back to Solutions on WURD Progressive Black Talk Media, 900 AM, 96.1 FM, and online at wordradio.com. This is Amadi Braxton, your host, and I'm back with Chris Rabb, who is here as Master Genealogist, not as State Rep. Uh, we're talking about the work that you've done to trace uh, deep and wide your family history on both sides of the family. And I specifically want to get into um, the ancestor that you named um who who was um purchased by or owned by the livingston one of the livingston family one of the wealthiest slaver families in the state of new york or in all of colonial america um and how they are connected with yale university um and and the offspring of was it barbara williams was the ancestor of yours who was mm-hmm. um, enslaved by the Livingston family. Um, and then talk about her offspring, who was your great, great, great grandmother. Yeah, a lot of greats in there. So my mother's mother uh, wanted to connect the dots between our black family and this massive, uh, prominent white family, the Livingstons out of New York. They had been in the U.S. or what would become the U.S. since the 1680s. And they amassed an extraordinary amount of land in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, actually, um, and owned plantations in Jamaica, um, five different plantations in Jamaica alone, and not to mention other properties elsewhere. 
So they were extraordinarily wealthy. That wealth helped them get into other lines of work like politics um, and business and all and the judiciary and so forth. Um, abolitionism. So there are people who whose people owned hundreds of enslaved people who eventually became abolitionists um, and whose wealth that allowed them to be abolitionists was based off of the enslavement of Africans. Hmm. Anyway, so um, this family um, is anything named Livingston is almost certainly connected. So Livingston, New Jersey, I think Livingston College at Rutgers, um, any number of prominent family, including the Bushes, which my kids hated uh, me telling people that we are distant cousins of George Bush and so forth. <laughs> um, but Eleanor Roosevelt um, is a fourth cousin. Um, mm. uh, just uh, any number of prominent uh, families were interconnected because back then um, they would they were only allowed to marry other um, prominent white people. So they had to be the right type of Christian denomination. They had to come from the right family. And oftentimes they thought the only people worthy of marrying Livingston's were other Livingston's. So there's a lot of inbreeding, um, hmm. cousins marrying cousins and not just distant cousins. Hmm. Um, so these stereotypes about rural people being inbred is an irony because most people who descend from royalty are um, are often into a lot of intermarriage. Um, so Princess Di was related to Prince, uh, whatever you call him now, King Charles, mm -hmm. that guy. They were actually distant cousins. Um, so there's a lot of that happening in the white side of, of, of uh, this family. And it's all to keep the wealth in the family, right? Absolutely. The wealth and all the status that comes with it. Correct. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, up until very recently, you know, probably... <laughs> Uh, post-World War II, most marriages were arranged marriages. They may not have been called that, but they absolutely were. Um, and the higher status you had, you know, you couldn't marry someone who wasn't your type of Christian or your type of whatever. Um, mm -hmm. So um, anyway, all that is to say that these folks have been um, revered as founders and important people in society with very little reference to their um, enrichment through massive human trafficking. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that they were prominent in various ways and they had a disconnect from Southern plantation style slavery. Um, and they looked down their noses at Southerners, um, but they were even more involved in slavery than most large scale Southerners because they owned the ships. They, the insurance and the bank and the banks and all of these other means, they were actually funding um, what they called privateers, which are what we call um, pirates yeah. to steal other people's cargo. Like they, they were, they had a hand in everything. So they were far more involved in slavery than the Southerners who we like to put all of this on. So, um, the descendants, though, who many of whom are very um, well established and highly educated, formally anyway, um, either were unaware of the connection of their ancestors to slavery or willfully ignorant. And one of the reasons I chose to go to the Livingston Family Reunion as a 26-year-old, uh, just 
you know, a couple of years out of college and had only been doing genealogy for a few years was because I didn't believe they deserved the privilege of ignorance that these rich white folk who summered in the homes, the mansions, the estates of their ancestors from the 1600s needed to know the truth so that they could never claim, oh, I didn't know. It was my job to let them know, um, not just for myself, my own um, personal kind of gratification, making these rich white folk nervous, but um, for my ancestors and for black folk who will never have the opportunity to challenge um, the 1%. This is the 1%. And the ancestor who I keep referring to, Christiana, my great, great, great grandmother, who was born in 1812, died in 1906. Um, she was the seamstress to the 1% of, the, of New York you know, high society. So mm -hmm. anything you would see, there's a show, I think it's on Netflix called um, The Gilded Age. Mm -hmm. Pretty good show. Um, it, it talks about kind of the nouveau riche white folk and the old money white folk. Well, the Livingstons were part of the old money. And they looked down at the new, nouveau riche white folk. Any amazing dress that you saw, any attire, any of that, that was all black people. Mm -hmm. They didn't do that for themselves. Mm -hmm. There were no, you know, chains, you know, no Macy's back then. Like this was done by highly skilled, um, enslaved um, workers um, or maybe they're free people of color. But we have to be very careful when we talk about free because they black folk then were not free who were not enslaved. They were unfree. White people were free. Black people were unfree or enslaved. And that's a really important distinction because they didn't have the same rights as white people. They couldn't vote. They couldn't live where they wanted to live. They couldn't get, get the jobs they wanted to get. They couldn't marry who they wanted to marry. They couldn't do any number of things. And that lasted through the 60s. <laughs> you know what I mean? right. and, they couldn't, they couldn't right. travel anywhere they wanted to travel. Exactly. Work, right. So the that's the kind of jobs that they might want to do. Yeah. Right. That's not free. That's unfree. So mm -hmm. language is really important. And you notice that you and I, we don't say slaves because we don't have ancestors who were slaves. We have ancestors that were human beings who were enslaved. It was a condition thrust upon them, sometimes by their own fathers who did not actually see their children as human beings. Mm -hmm. right? So biologically, there was a connection to the enslavers. But I often try to make the point that there's a distinction between family and relatives. So these mm -hmm. Livingstons who I engage with and who uh, were connected to my fam to my ancestors, they're not family because family suggests a certain level of intimacy. These folks are relatives. Mm -hmm. And there's a distinction between ancestry and heritage, which relates to family and relatives. So ancestry is kind of our, our genetic makeup, our biology, what we are. Okay, we are Irish, we are indigenous, we are Ghanaian, whatever, like this is, these are the places we come from and the genetic mutations that occur in these parts of the world can be overlain with what we call ethnicity or nationality or race. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but ancestry is what we are. Heritage influences who we are and who we choose to become over time, because we can inherit certain cultural aspects, uh, how we eat, how we dress, how we pray, how we 
uh, raise children, any number of things. Those are choices. So we didn't have a choice of like what household we were raised in. But as we become adults, we can say, I love this inheritance from my mom's side of the family. Um, but there are certain things in our family culture that I don't want to take on to the next generation that may be abusive, that may be discriminatory, that may be parochial, mm -hmm. right? And so that's heritage. And we have a choice over what we what we what we've been given and what we actually receive and pass along, um, whether you have children or not. Ancestor, we have no choice over. And because we have no choice, we should not have either pride nor shame. How are you going to have pride for something you had no control over? Mm -hmm. And how can you be ashamed of choices that people made hundreds of years before you were even thought of? Mm -hmm. So it's actually a way that I'm able to, to engage white people who didn't descend from enslavers. Because a lot of time it's this white guilt that kind of penetrates these conversations and bring holds up walls. And I say, hey, look, um, I don't really have space for your guilt because mm -hmm. un unless you had a time machine and encouraged your white ancestors to enslave people, it ain't your fault. So don't hold on to that. Now you can feel guilty for not speaking up around racial justice, being a racist, you know, have being willfully ignorant that that you should feel guilty for. But even more importantly, you should do something about it because guilt is really a useless emotion. You need to acknowledge your complicity and do better. Mm -hmm. And secondly, because I'm a genealogist and I've been doing this for 30 years, sadly, you know, just or wh whatever it is, I can I descend from a lot of rapists. Mm. I descend from a lot of white people who raped girls um, and they had children who were my ancestors. Mm -hmm. So if I don't feel shame for having a load of rapists in from 200 years ago, neither should white people. Mm. If you believe that the wealth that ha you have inherited that has trickled down from generation to generation, that you deserve it and that it's all from hard work and, you know, no one else, then then you should you should be ashamed because that's you're living a lie. So right. once you have the information, you need to do better. And we all need to do better. Right. Because we all can learn from this history. And there's right. a difference between our past and our history. We can't change the past, but history is something we create. And we just recreate it in this moment, right? Because the history we tell a hundred years ago about the American Revolution is different than the history we tell about the American Revolution today. Today is more inclusive. We talk about indigenous people, free people of color, black folk, Germans, right. et cetera, et cetera. So this is the process. Okay. We're going to leave it there. We're going to go to our next break and we'll return to the conversation on the other side. You're listening to Solutions. We'll be right back. You're listening to Solutions exclusively on Word Radio, 96.1 FM and 900 AM WURD. Welcome to Solutions. Welcome back to Solutions. We are back with Chris Rabb talking about his work in genealogy, genealogy to uncover his uh, ancestry um, and particularly uh, a line of his, well, uh, part of his lineage that shows up connected to the Livingston family of New York, uh, one of the wealthiest uh, enslavers in the early colonial America. Um, and I want to, I want to bring us back to the Yale connection. Um, you 
shared with me uh, a video of a recent panel you sat on where I learned that Yale is doing a project on Yale's connection to slavery and the history uh, of, of Yale's connection to slavery. Um, and this is something that you were also working on as a student at Yale in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about the Yale connection um, and where your ancestor figures in. I, you know, I, I, I wonder sometimes if my ancestors had something to do with it. Um, my my grandma, the same grandma who hired me, really wanted me to go to Yale because it was a dream of her father, who actually grew up in Connecticut, not far from New Haven, in Hartford. And, um, you know, there were not a lot of Black folk going to Yale back in the turn of the century. So when I had a shot, my my grandmother was pulling for me. Well, I got in and uh, this was 1988. And I, I will rem- I remember it like it was yesterday. <laughs> when I was preparing to go, she says, remember, you are surrounded by assassins. And I'm like, my goodness, grandma, that's that's cold blooded. That's you're scaring the hell out of me. What are you doing telling me that? But she did not want me to fall into a sense of complacency. Like I had arrived, like, um, you know, that this institution was made for me, that there would not be challenges that, you know, me just being the, the body that I inhabited posed a threat institutionally to to this university that that was very hostile to black people since its founding. It was founded by an enslaver, Elihu Yale, and there are pictures of him with enslaved children as a, to show his status in a very cruel and brutal way. So when I got to Yale, we're all connected to one of 12 residential colleges. They're essentially dormitories, and you're connected to that residential college for all four years you're there. And it's done fairly randomly unless you're a legacy, if your dad, your you know, uncle or older sibling went there and Yale was all male until 1971, I believe. So for the most part, it's through your paternal line. So I was connected to Calhoun College. I didn't really much think about it until I showed up and I saw these images of like Southern plantations and crops and such. And then I started seeing Black folk. And I realized that the Calhoun that this college was named after was the notorious John C. Calhoun, U.S. Senator from South Carolina, former VP, former Secretary of War, secessionist and self-avowed white supremacist. And I'm like, y'all are killing me. Y'all sending me here and you're going to put me in the in the residential college that is named after the worst white supremacist because there were others. But he was by far the worst. I'm like, y'all are killing me. So for the next four years, I was raising hell at Yale. Um, try Initially, I was trying to get them to change the name. But what happened was um, I talked to what was then called the master. Every, pres- every residential college had a master and a dean. The dean was responsible for the academic life of students, undergraduates at that um, residential college. And the master was responsible for the social aspects, everything else, the operational, the functionality of of the residential college. They no longer are called masters, I think, as yeah, of- That's good. Yes. Um, but the master at the time was a very old white guy who was a historian. And I remember as a freshman, and I, I remember showing him a stained glass window of a black man in tatters, in shackles, 
on bended knee, le- point, you know, like revering um, John uh, John C. Calhoun, the senator with the Washington, the Capitol behind his his left shoulder. And it was just the most grotesque imagery I'd ever seen. I said, this is literally a form of institutional racism. It's baked into the architecture. Th- this is absurd. Mm-hmm. And he, I remember him telling me, oh, you can't change history. I said, well, you know, you can change that stained glass window. And he had it removed. He had the black person removed. John C. Calhoun remained. And he had this empty space. Well, after that happened, most people thought I'd either broken it or stolen it. <laughs> and no one can find that that stained glass window. Like, because it's not like he took it out himself. The guy was probably in his 90s, back in the 80s. Like, he had someone remove it, but we cannot find it since that date. So, to this day, people think I broke it or stole it. Hmm. Fast forward, uh, I went uh, the following Thanksgiving in 89, I went to Baltimore to visit my grandfolks. And I would say, hey, guess what I did? Because, you know, I really looked up to them. They're civil rights activists you know, kind of radical. And they were upset with me. Oh, really? Yeah. They're like, you're creating a sense of institutional amnesia by removing these offensive images. We need to be reminded of them and recontextualize them, not pretend that they didn't exist because Mm. you're doing a disservice to every generation of student that comes after you because they will be ignorant of that history and Mm -hmm. the politics of this university, which did not acknowledge its connection, its enrichment from um, the slave trade. Mm. And they were quite disappointed. And I was just, it broke my heart, but I had enough presence of mind to listen to their wisdom. And when I came back on campus, I I changed my, my, my strategic lens to focusing on educating people increasing the literacy around who John C. Calhoun was and why and how Yale named a residential college after him 80 years after he died. Hmm. And what that meant in terms of the university's ongoing politics and commitment to um, lux et veritas, which is light and truth, right? And saying, this this ain't about light and truth here. Y'all are faking the funk here. And um, so that was my kind of baptism by fire as an undergrad. And then I graduated in 92. And then in 94, when I was living in Washington, D.C. and starting my genealogical journey, I discovered that, um, you know, my connection to the Livingstons. And then when I came back to visit Yale in probably 97, um, I saw that there was an archway called the Livingston Archway. Mm-hmm. And it was the same Livingston. It was my seventh great grandfather. It was the father of one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, Philip Livingston, whose own grandson, Philip Henry Livingston, raped Barbara Williams, having removed her from a plantation in Jamaica and brought her to New York to work in his household. And if I had known that information as an undergrad, I probably would have burned down the school. I ain't going to lie. I, I know. I guess so you're. Your head would have exploded if you it would have, right? Because then it's personal. John C. Calhoun, I didn't have any personal connection with, even though the Rabs 
come from that same area of South Carolina, there was no direct connection. But this guy was a direct ancestor and was the first benefactor of Yale. He gave 28 pounds of ster sterling silver to Yale Divinity School in 1745, which is roughly around $10,000 today, which is not a lot. But back then, it's all relative, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the first benefactors is one of the biggest human traffickers in U.S. history. And he's giving money to the Divinity School. How ironic. Right, right, right. Because right. he was a good Christian. Right. So that well, that's the connection. So, so well, let me go back to... Um, well, well, let me just say that the the panel that you shared with me is about the fact that there is a Yale and slavery project, history project that is culminating in the, the publication of a book about Yale's connection, historical connection to slavery uh, and enslavement um, that will be released in February next year. Yes, yes. And I okay. think I'll be invited for that, even though that my story did not make it into the book. So if oh, it's it ever revised, I hope it will. Um, the people who are responsible for it were part of the panel and the, the event. So it wasn't intentional. It was just bad timing. Mm -hmm. So yes, they have something called the Yale and Slavery Research Project, which the administration supports. However, a generation prior, when I was much younger, it was the Graduate Student Union. Um, and one of those folks is Anthony Dugdale, who's uh, a union leader here in Philadelphia. Um, who was part of um, um, a who did a a, a uh, unauthorized report on Yale and slavery that the former administration did not acknowledge. Mm. So this is the first time that there is a project that is um, formally approved of and supported by the administration, mm. uh, by the outgoing president, Peter Salovey, who's a former professor of mine. And so now, all the work that I've done since the 80s is being affirmed and validated institutionally mm -hmm. um, for the benefit of everyone, because we got to tell the whole truth here, right? right? And that's what they're seeking to do. But prior to that, I was approached by someone from the Yale University Art Gallery who was doing an exhibit on Black portraiture. And there are very few Black people in the 19th century who have photos where there are photos of black folk and whose identities are known. So okay. there are portraits of black folk and we no one knows who they are, but there's a much smaller population of folks or portraits where you actually have the names of those people and, and perhaps other information. Well, they came across images of my ancestors, uh, Christiana, who I told you about, and her daughters, Mary Christiana and Isadora, and they're beautiful portraits that my family gave to the Library of Congress. And um, they're using them in an exhibit and they asked for my permission. I said, well, you know, technically they're already with the Library of Congress. So you don't need to ask for my permission. But as, you know, one of the family genealogists, I hope you you tell the whole story. And I was the one to inform the curator that there is a connection between Yale University, um, slavery and these portraits. And so she was like, wow, OK. So I basically encouraged her to bring me to campus to talk about it because mm -hmm. you, you can't just wait for for you know white folk or institutions to do the right thing you gotta figure it out right yeah figure up so that's what happened they did a great job it was an extraordinary panel and you're welcome to share the the link you know 
uh, for folks to, to watch. It's in the public domain. But it's the first time that Yale has acknowledged its complicity in slavery, its enrichment um, at the expense of enslaved laborers, men, women, and children. So it was a really moving and powerful experience for me because really up until that time, since the 80s, Yale had had a, turned a cold shoulder to yeah. this issue and to folks like me who are bringing it up. And I just, it, it was very meaningful. And, and it, it felt like I was communing with the ancestors and all those folks who didn't have a voice. Mm -hmm. um, and this is just the beginning, right? Because ultimately it's not just about acknowledging, it's about repairing the harm. And yes. when we talk about reparations, the core thing is, is repair. We're not repairing black people, we're repairing society. We're repairing the institutions that have been infected by bigotry, white supremacy, patriarchy, all these things. Um, it's, so this is not a gift to black people. This is a gift to humanity and society itself to, to heal and to grow in the most meaningful ways. So when we talk about reparations, it's not really reparations for black people. Black people will be the beneficiaries and centered in this, but the fruits of reparation benefits society as a whole. And I have to just say the obvious, and I know you know this, but racism, you know, particularly anti-Black racism, it hurts millions of white people too. Right? Mm -hmm. And there's so many connections to slavery and systemic racism that hurt white people that they don't even know about, that once you actually connect the dots, there's a lot more room for community and collaboration, whether it's the minimum wage, the tipped minimum wage, where in, in Pennsylvania it's $2.83. So if you are a, a single white woman with a, with a child uh, trying to make ends meet and you, got, you have a GED and you live in rural Pennsylvania, the reason employers are able to pay you a tipped minimum wage of $2.83 is because of slavery. Mm. So you are, you are a victim of white racism as a white person. Mm -hmm. Policies that now hurt many people beyond just black people. Right. So the more we talk about this and connect the dots, um, the more people, the more people should understand the necessity of reparations, not for black people, but for society itself. Obviously, black people should be front and center and decide how reparations should be implemented so that we are actually benefited and it's not some kind of window dressing. That's such an interesting point you make because I think, you know, the, if you look at the the southern states that have, you know, right to work laws and they don't allow union organizing. They have the lowest, uh, you know, uh, uh, per capita income. They have the lowest wages. That's right. Um, why is that? And that's not just affecting black people. That's affecting everybody who lives there has the lowest. Absolutely. Wages. Same is same principle. Um, I want to um, go back to the Livingston family because you have. So you alluded to crashing. I don't know if you would use the word crashing or attending the Livingston family reunion back when you were 26. Um, but you have gone to other Livingston family reunion events since, uh, I think recently you, you went to one, how have they received you? And, um, do they, yeah. How have they received you? It's wild. You, you seen the, the movie, um, get out. Yes. It had that vibe to it. It's real creepy. Um, Ooh, that is creepy. It was 1996. Now, this this family reunion isn't wasn't held at like a Marriott or some place. It was held on the estate, 
the Livingston estate that had been dwindled down to a mere 587 um, acres oh. along the east bank of the Hudson. So it was very small and intimate, right? <laughs> I mean, but remember, I told you in the beginning, they had a million acres. Right. But in the 60s, this Livingston family bequeathed their property to the state of New York. So now it's owned by the state. And um, they have, you know, like a visitor center and the original mansion. It's still there where my ancestor lived in the basement. Mm. Um, so it was really moving. Um, and so I was the first black person to be invited to Livingston Reunion who wasn't a nanny. Wow. That, that gives you some perspective. This is like an aggressively white reunion here. Right. And mm -hmm. again, not everyone, but a critical mass were ridiculously wealthy, went to elite schools, you know, literally summered in the mansions of their ancestors from the 1600s, 1700s. That's how deep this was. And most white people have never been in an environment like this. It's very right. daunting to most people. And so I was actually, I insisted on giving a presentation that connected my black family to the Livingstons. So I was ready. I had this whole chart and pictures and it was under this big tent. And so basically a third of the white folk there were, were like, who are these Negroes? We out. And they just bounced. Okay. Mm. <laughs> and then we're talking about a couple hundred people. Another mm. third were like, who are these, who are these Negroes here? Let me stick around in case they don't steal some furniture, whatever. you know, like, it's like just, <laughs> morbid curiosity. And the last third were kind of the younger, more liberal uh, white folk were like, hey, cousin, welcome. Part of it was, you know, probably very authentic. And probably there's a, a, a subset of them were like, oh, I know this will really piss off my grand folks. Let me be nice to them. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was a very interesting dynamic. And I brought with me eight of my family. Okay. So I brought, eight, I brought my, my grandparents, my brother, my parents, my cousin, my aunt, my uncle. Like, so it was, I came there were eight eight eight. Of us. Eight yeah, eight. we yeah, we came in, we had a posse. <laughs> so people were like, oh, what is about to pop off? And so um I, I made my presentation and um I talked about slavery and rape. And wow. you know, you could hear a pin drop. And then after I spoke, a little old lady came up to me and she 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 didn't want to believe that rape was involved. And she's like, do you, do you really think, you know, could have been consensual? And, you know, she was hoping. And, you know, I, I said, there's no evidence for that. And that's not the way to really look at it. Um, and she was sweet, but, and, but I had to, you know, tell her what I thought. Well, fast forward to this reunion, how many years later, 27 years later, the daughter of that woman, and her her sons, who were probably my age, um, I was telling that story and about this woman. And she goes, did she have a mild Southern accent? And I said, yeah, I think she did. She goes, that was my mother. She just died last year. Mm. So I was telling the story to like the descendants and we just had a moment, right? Because I wasn't saying it disparagingly. Mm -hmm. she, she, didn't, she didn't want to hear the ugly truth not because she was mean or, or racist or whatever, but because it was hard. It, this is hard for people, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. We have to lean into this difficulty. That's the problem with our society. We shun those controversial discussions. 
Mm-hmm. But if you do that, we can't learn. If we can't learn, we can't heal. If we can't heal, we can't grow. If we don't grow, we can't be stronger and be more unified. So we have to have these conversations. And sometimes that takes courage. And I didn't know if I had it as a 26-year-old. Like, but I had to find that strength. And I I I I I give credit to to my grandma, to my parents, you know, and to my ancestors. They they imparted this this internal wisdom and strength in me because this is so much bigger than my story. This is a story of all black folk. Yeah, yeah. We're up on our last break. Um, I wanted to give you an opportunity to share uh, something that you're doing with the state of New York, but we're at the time that I designated for you to uh, go off the air tonight, unless you would like to stay on a little bit further after this break. How can Uh, I say no to you, Amadi? Okay, I'm just checking. Um, (laughs) We'll be right back with uh, Chris Rabb talking about his connection to the Livingston family. And we're going to talk a little bit about reparations on the other side of this break and what that would look, could look like. You're listening to Solutions on WRD, Progressive Black Talk Media. We'll be right back. You're listening to Solutions exclusively on Word Radio, 96.1 FM and 900 AM WURD. Welcome back to Solutions on WRD, Progressive Black Talk Media. This is Amadi Braxton back with Chris Rabb. We are talking about um, his genealogical work uncovering uh, the connection his family has to the Livingston family of New York, one of the largest enslavers in colonial America. Um, and he has graced us with a few more minutes of his time uh, to finish up this story. So, um, Chris, I want to ask you, you were you were contacted by the state of New York. Is that correct? About... Uh, uh, my family's your, story, your, yeah, your family's story and the connection. Yeah. Um, can you what can you tell us about that? Um, so I, I'd mentioned previously that um, one Livingston household back in the '60s gave their their estate, they gifted it to the state of New York, and now it's one of like two dozen state historic sites that is managed by like the Department of parks and such. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a 587 acre plot of land in one of the most scenic places I've ever seen along the east bank of the Hudson River. It's just amazing. Um, and the mansion where my ancestor toiled and lived in the basement, it's still there. It's the centerpiece of the property. Um, the people who were hired by the state to manage that site, they spoke to um, uh, so their boss is a black woman who's the chief interpreter for New York history. And they have an initiative called the whole, our whole story initiative, which tells the story of New York, the state of New York through the lens of all people who made New York, what it is, not just white folk, not just rich folk, um, Mm -hmm. but black folk, indigenous folk, you name it. Um, and, they all have stories that make this whole history meaningful, but has really never been told in that way. And obviously folks listening to us right now as black folk, we know, yeah, they don't tell our stories, right? But now there's this initiative. And so she found out about me and what we were trying to do. And she basically said, we're gonna do an exhibit centering your, your family's story in connection to New York and uh, slavery and the Livingstons. And so we've begun that collaboration and it will, I believe it'll be a traveling exhibit 
um, throughout 2024, beginning in um, in the spring. And the reason it's in the spring is traditionally that's when the Pinkster Festival was. And the Pinkster Festival is a syncretism of Dutch and West African cultures. It's both religious and social that was very popular in parts of New York, where the oh. Dutch had a huge influence. And um, it happened every spring. So it's kind of like Easter and uh, Mardi Gras. It's a whole thing. And it's new, it's unique to New York culture. Oh, wow. And so they're going to inaugurate this new exhibit um, around the same time in 2024. So I'm very excited about it because this will be the first time that any institution has acknowledged our existence and the connection um, uh, to the Livingstons in ways that the Livingston family has not, in ways that Claremont Historic Site has not. So um, I'm very excited about it. That's great. And so it's going to be traveling around New York State. I believe, I don't know the details. I don't know if it'll be traveling um, like where it will go, like if it'll go Mm -hmm. to all the state historic sites, if it'll go to schools or libraries or anything. Um, But uh, if there is some kind of inaugural event, I will be there. Um, And, um, you know, I just... It, it has an ancestral resonance for me. There, mm-hmm. Our stories, the stories of our ancestors must be told and their legacies must be honored. That is our charge. That is our charge. Mm-hmm. And yeah, for those of us who are engaged in family history and genealogy, it's so much more than documenting the footprints of our own ancestors, but all of our ancestors and telling mm-hmm. those stories to affirm our collective fabulosity as Black folk. Because ain't nobody going to do it for us. And if they do, they ain't going to do it as well as we do, because this is our people. And we should be responsible for our own stories. Yeah. And in this way, it's like our ancestors are living through us today. I mean, that's why the past is not the past. The past is very much the present um, because we are we are carrying their story forward. And this this is a gift not to us, but to future generations. Right. So I have I've been obsessed in trying to make my ancestors proud. But when I became a father, it pivoted. I got to make my children proud of me. Mm-hmm. I want them to learn from me. I want them to have cultural inheritances that they're proud of, that make them stronger people, that make them, um, as my grandfather used to say, chesty Negroes. That means the type of black person, wherever they walk, they got their chest out. They're not, you know, slinking around, feeling less than. They feel like wherever they are, that's where they're supposed to be. That's what I want to pass on to the next generation, whether my kids or anybody's kids. This is mm-hmm. our responsibility. We can't leave it to anyone else. We have the power. We have the tools. And we have to We have to listen to our ancestors. So speaking of listening to our ancestors and speaking of uh, uh, accounting for their labors, their unseen labors or invisibilized labors. Um, I want to talk about reparations because at the top of the show, I, uh, before you came on, I, I talked about the governor of New York signing a bill that would set up a commission to study reparations for not only for enslavement, but for systemic racism in the state of New York. And so how does your story connect to um, reparations? I know, you know, reparations is something that you are pursuing um, (laughs) as a legislator in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, And it's also being pursued at the municipal level here in Philadelphia right now. Um, They're setting up a commission. 
Um, they're trying to get people to to they're trying to get enough people to actually serve on that commission in Philly. They're having trouble with that. But where does your work, um, your own family genealogy work intersect with the question of reparations? All right. So I'd mentioned before, when we talk about reparations, it's how I want folks to, to consider this subject. We're dealing with systems that have intentionally um, oppressed black folk in, in every way. It's the only meaningful type of reparations we should be embracing is systemic in nature. So if we're just dealing with the symptoms, it doesn't, it's not enough. So cutting somebody a check, that's, that's, not, that's not enough, right? The only way we know that reparations has worked is if there are no more racial disparities. Mm-hmm. We can look at other, other injustices, systemic injustices, like gender injustice, uh, like excluding uh, girls and women from sports. And we have Title IX, right, where we, you have to have resources and programs in place to allow for the um, uh, opportunities, meaningful and equitable opportunities um, in sports, right? That was a game changer, literally. Um, you know, it wasn't perfect, but once you kind of dissolve some of these barriers and you let people excel based on merit, it, it things change. Now we have, there, there are more girls that are graduating from high school, graduating from med school um, than their male counterparts. Mm-hmm. When you, you dissolve the systemic sexism, people rise up, right? And as well, they should. Well, the same will happen with black folk. If you have meaningful reparations in place that address systems of oppression, the same will happen there. Right. We, we can look to we can look to sports for black folk. Right. They exclude us from all these things. They let us in. We excel in almost everything where the playing field has been level. Folks from the margins excel. So that's how we have to think about reparations. If you are an aggrieved individual or family who said these folks stole my property in Alabama in 1832 and they they you know, they ran us out of town. That's more restitution. Like we are owed as individuals or as as a family, a collective, this. When we talk about reparations, it is more like a class action suit, right? You are going Mm -hmm. after whole sectors of society. And it's not just federal government. A lot of folks get caught up on saying, this is what Congress should do. But it should be on a state level too, because slavery was a state law. Pennsylvania, slavery was the law of the land until it wasn't. And it was... We were the first state to start gradual abolition in 1780, but there were still black people enslaved up to 1847. Mm. So that's not even like we don't tell the whole story. And then we have corporations were part of this. We have religious orders like the Jesuits. They were part of it. Um, universities, as we said, like there's right. so many swaths um, uh, that are connected to this where reparations are owed. So there's a difference between restitution and reparation. So if you're talking about my family in New York, my family was not robbed of property. Indigenous people, the Iroquois, were robbed of their land. Um, uh, Germans and Irish were conscripted and brought over from Europe to be um, 
uh, to do the work, the ironwork and masonry and other kinds of things, and were exploited in, in awful ways before they were even considered white in this country. Indentured servitude. Indentured servitude and other forms of conscription. They deserve justice, too. So indigenous folk, certain folks from Europe, black folk, whether they were enslaved or not, we all have to address these issues. They're intertwined. And it, at the at the heart of it is white supremacy and proto-capitalism. Because mm -hmm. again, back then in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, a lot of folks from Europe were not considered white because they weren't the right type of European. Certainly the Irish, man, right. they were considered white until very recently. Jewish right. people weren't really considered white until after the establishment of Israel. So we're really talking Italians. about- Italians, perfect example, right? Mm -hmm. So we have all of these different folks. All the, it's not a competition, right? We can say black folks suffered in in extraordinarily inhumane ways, and as, and we were not able to become white, right? The best reparation you can give, and this is very you know cynical, is affording whiteness to a group that was exploited, right? So now mm -hmm. Irish are considered as white as anyone else, Italian, et cetera, et cetera, German, right? So they don't have the same enduring grievances that black people do because we're not assimilated racially in ways that uh, folks from Europe are. So I strongly believe in reparations. I believe in restitution too. I believe that my family should be entitled to something from the state of New York um, to do the right thing based on our connection, but not to the exclusion of other people who have not been able to connect their ancestors genealogically with this. There's something that has to happen that is that doesn't just benefit those of us who are privileged enough to be genealogists and have documentation and stuff. This is something we have to do society wide, not just, you know, the folks with the documents. So are you so are you saying that people shouldn't get checks? Because I'm, I'm channeling some of my listeners right now who are listening to you and are like, we got to get people do have to get paid. Oh, no, it's not an either or. But okay. a check will not create racial justice. A check will not dissolve racial disparities. We need, I believe that there are certain circumstances um, where certain subsets of black folk should get checks. And I believe that there it should be graduated. If if you are new to this country, let's say you from Jamaica and you just got here and we have reparations in place. And the people who are discriminating against you don't know or don't care that you're from Jamaica. They just see you as black. Should you get as big a check as someone who's been here for eight generations? I don't think so. Or how about if it's a state-based reparations plan like, like I'm working on? How long have your people been in Pennsylvania? Right? If you're just new to Pennsylvania, should you get the same size check as someone whose people have been here since the 1840s? That's not fair. Right. Mm -hmm. Because implicit in what this reparations plan does is says the longer your people have been your family, uh, your black family has been in Pennsylvania, the longer you have been victimized by anti-black white supremacist policies, practices and programs that are clearly mm -hmm. documented. Mm -hmm. I will be documenting that explicitly and publicizing something as early as this February um, to create the context for why reparations should be a state policy going forward. So if you believe that state policies hurt black people because they are intentionally and explicitly or implicitly anti-black, 
and you just showed up, why would your check be the same as someone whose people have been here for 200 years? So right. yes, I believe people should get checks. But the bigger issue is, what is the systemic solution right. to systemic racism? Right. Okay. And a check is not systemic. Right. Okay. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, we didn't get to talk about uh, your ancestor, Christiana, and uh, the, the other abolitionists in your family and all the great work that they did to actually assist others uh, in gaining their freedom from slavery. But that will be for another time. Thank you so much, Chris Rabb, who is state rep of the 200th Legislative District, but also a wonderful master genealogist, I would call you, uh, who's doing great work to not only connect the dots of history for your own family, but by doing so, elevating the history uh, for all of us. So thank you very much. You've been listening to Word Radio On Demand. Listen live at 96.1 FM, 900 AM, and online at wordradio.com.